0: Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena,
1: what did you get obsessed with this week?
0: So I really like watching YouTube videos about how people spend their money. I watch a lot of them. In particular, I really like the CNBC one called Making It, where they have people just, you know, talk you through their daily expenses, their income, everything. There's a lot of similar ones. There's Refinery29 and Man Repeller's Money Diaries. Glamour has one. They're all anonymous, but the CNBC one isn't anonymous. They show the people's faces. They tell you their names. And they've been doing this very interesting thing where the ones that they have due to release very recently – They've gone back and had the people self-tape and sort of talk about how the coronavirus has affected their lives, their spending, their jobs.
1: Yeah, it's a really timely topic because the U.S. jobless figure has just hit a record high, bringing the total to over 16 million. The International Labour Organization has predicted that world job losses could reach up to 25 million. So finances on everyone's minds. Absolutely. I think particularly for freelancers.
0: I mean, we know a lot of freelancers. I think a lot of them have been incredibly fortunate because Germany has, if you can prove that you're losing clients, a lot of people have just gotten 5k deposited in their bank accounts, which thank God for a lot of freelancers in this time. That's such a big deal. But in general, I'm very uncomfortable talking about money and I tend to get very squeamish when it comes to income, but I had a job interview where they asked you to specify your salary expectations. And I was in the second round of the interview with the co-founder of the company. And the very first thing she said to me was that I asked for too little money.
1: I think you're not the only person who's squeamish about money. I mean, the fact that most of these money diaries online are anonymous just signals the fact that people are not comfortable talking about it in a transparent way. Time magazine had an article where they said that 40% of couples don't discuss money before they get married, even though it's one of the biggest stress factors in relationships. So at this point, I think it's sort of easier to talk openly about your sex life than it is to talk about how much money you earn and invest and all of that. Prior to this conversation that I had
0: with this woman, no one had ever given me any sort of measuring stick for how much I should be earning. And even then, like, she didn't tell me a specific figure, but she was like, you have worked this many years, you know,
1: you have this degree, you asked for too little money. So asking for too little money is something that I do consistently and since you pointed me to all these money diaries, I've been getting into them as a kind of strange form of voyeurism (laughs) and information that you normally don't get. And on Man Repeller, one of the money diaries is by a Brooklyn carpenter and he says, I work 70 hours a week on average. I chronically say yes to jobs but also constantly undervalue my labour because I think of my skill set as a hobby rather than a profession. Now Now, I mean, I think carpenter is really like solid craftsman skill and essential. But as a writer, I also constantly undervalue my work for a few reasons. Yeah, one of them is a lot of people look at it as a hobby or not very important and all that kind of stuff. And that filters through. Another thing is, of course, the myth of the starving artist or the starving writer, which is really damaging, but we take it on. Because as soon as we decide to pursue a career or an education in the arts and live a life as an artist or writer, we are consciously saying, well, money is not our primary goal. Because if money is the primary thing you're interested in making, you're going to go to business or finance or sales or marketing or advertising the sole purpose of those jobs is to make money and then you know financial success is one of your main things whereas as a writer or an artist your goal is to communicate or to make things to collaborate so then money really falls low onto like what you're asking and we I think we don't value that skill enough I think like carpenters, we need artists and writers. When I was in grad school, I did a master's in
0: theater. We had to do a semester where we did a placement where you went and you worked in an organization for free. We were working full-time positions. In different aspects of the theatre industry, but for free. And my brother, who studied computer science, had to do something similar. He was paid a full salary. I worked more than 40 hour weeks. Didn't get paid for
1: anything. We all, in the arts, start working for free. I've worked for free, written for free, for exposure. I mean, it's ridiculous. In Girls, Lena Dunham is working for a publishing company as an intern for free because it's publishing. And then we get paid less. I know a lot of people who are in the arts and all of us say, oh, you know, we don't like marketing, we don't like finances because it's part of the definition of our identity. Mm-hmm. And it's really damaging. And I don't agree with it. It's just an identity that we've kind of taken on as part of a myth of being creative. It's not helpful. It's not useful. And I wish I could change it. But I'm also terrified and stressed out by money. Same here.
0: We also, during my master's program, we looked at some job advertisement for some entry-level jobs that you could get after graduating. And one of them was for 11k full-time position. And in the job advertisement, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said something along the lines of money isn't a fact to you. You do it because you love it. And there was even the sense of, oh, I'd be paid for this. But even then, I'm not really doing it for the money. Am I not? Right?
1: Yeah. Because the thing is, once you start thinking and talking about money, it somehow devalues your passion. I mean, that's the perception, the purity of your intention. Purity of intention.
0: Because I think that
1: we view money as
0: sort of something that's at the same time, it's embarrassing to talk about or uncomfortable and it's also disgusting.
1: We're artists we should be thinking on a higher level than that but... Lynn Steger-Strong published a really interesting article in The Guardian and it's entitled, A Dirty Secret You Can Only Be A Writer If You Can Afford It. And this is what nobody talks about. In order to create art or to write a book, to sustain any long-term creative work, you need time and you need space. And you need necessarily to be in a privileged position to afford that. So the reason I could become a writer, I quit my job, is because I had a partner who had a full-time job to support you, basically. Otherwise I would never have been able to get to get going as a writer and obviously it also depends on what kind of writer you are kafka had a full-time job and then wrote on the side but i need a lot of space and time i can't do two full-time jobs thinking is a privilege of the rich isn't it you need to have the time to be able to just sit and think yeah and there are always these calls every now and then say like where are the working class writers they're working (laughs) they working, that no such thing. You can't, they don't have time. Apart from Bukowski. Yeah, but even then, it's
0: while I was working and I was yeah. trying to do other projects on the side, whether it's applying to school or other things, it took so much energy to even do these little things that you just, if you work full time, you don't want to do it. You don't want to sit yeah. down, dedicate time and hours. You want to turn your brain off, you want to sleep, you want to eat.
1: A lot of studies and a lot of articles have shown that writers do live below the minimum wage and on the poverty line. Mary Rassenberger, executive director of the Authors Guild, says, well, in the 20th century, a good literary writer could earn a middle-class living just writing, but now most writers need to supplement their income with speaking engagements or teaching or just hustling. Nowadays, it's the gig economy, so we're doing a bunch of other things apart from just writing. According to an article that Philip Pullman wrote for The Guardian, a 2016 European Commission report said that writers have an annual income of just £12,500. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And this is not just somebody who's written one short story or one novel. These are working writers who are consistently producing work. When you were talking about the gig economy and, you
0: know, teaching on the side, it made me think of the CNBC video, The Millennial Money, because there's this couple who they, you know, she she had been a teacher, she was getting recertified and all these things, and they only made SS together as a college-educated couple, 56,000.
1: Everyone should watch this video because these are also the cutest couple on the planet. I'm really impressive. They've got a very solid hold on their finances, which shows that even if you don't earn a lot, if you have a plan and you budget and you know exactly where you want to go with your money, you can still achieve a sense of financial competence.
0: In a study done by Philippe Cast and Stephen Meyer, they found that the likelihood that you will deposit into your savings account increases 3.7 fold if you announce your goals to others. So by saying out loud, mm-hmm. I want to save, you, you increase the chances of actually saving.
1: I think the more we can talk about money and if we can see how other people are managing really well, we can apply those same things. If we can compare like, so for example, at the end of last year in 2019, and increasingly in the in the world of writing, people have been publishing their rates which publications pay, like a a lot of freelance writers really published what they made and broke it down and it was very interesting to see like some writers made 12,000 made 100,000 and through what means they did that and this was just so useful to look at in order to kind of educate yourself as to how you could make money and just an open conversation.
0: Well, because it's true it's in capitalism's best interest that we don't talk about money because if we're all kept in the dark about how much we make we will undervalue ourselves. At one of my former jobs my female colleague and I found out after we had left the job that our male colleague who actually worked one day less than both of us did made more money and we had never talked about it so if the two of us had together put pressure on our employer to pay us more we would have had such leverage but we never talked about it
1: and about women and money as well women tend to just ask for lower salaries because also it's not just artists all women across all sectors undervalue themselves and their work And this is, again, to do with confidence and valuing yourself.
0: And I think we're also
1: socialized a little bit to sort of think that money is not for us? Because men are defined by their status, their jobs, and how much money they make, and maybe even by external things like what car they drive traditionally. Whereas women are, first of all, have been defined by their looks and their bodies. But apart from that, we have made our own definitions because we've been cut out of the job world for so long that we've started defining ourselves in different ways. So, friends, mm-hmm. uh, family, and also if it comes comes to I think a lot of my work is focused on telling stories about women and for women's publications and you're not going to make a lot of money doing that.
0: It also sort of we know we're just talking about through corona and everything we're heading towards another financial recession and it sort of made me realize I don't really fully understand what a recession is and I think that millennials a lot of the times are thought to be stupid when it comes to money and sort of held out of the conversation a little bit. And I think, not that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't quite mean that, but the conversation around money is always dominated by such negative things that you sort of feel negatively about it. People are just like, oh, you know, the recession in 2008, the recession in 2020, the public conversation around money is always so negative that it feels like as a millennial, you're
1: millennials are under debt, millennials are bad with money. I mean, this generation now, since the financial crisis of 2008, there's been a lot of volatility in the job market. We've got more of a gig economy and less stability and our traditional model that the generation before had which was you get a solid job that's going to carry you through for most of your life you know you buy a property all of these things are kind of closed off to us so this generation has got a little bit more stress around Mm -hmm. money and trying to get on the property ladder and all of that the older generation did not have as much
0: A study done by Gallup in 2015 found that 70% of millennials are financially stressed. And I think this is specifically true in like America where people have such high debts when they come out of college and then things like they're in charge of managing their own retirement. They have to pay for their own health care. I think we are incredibly fortunate in Germany where government kind of takes care of that for us. Not saying you shouldn't also not have a retirement fund separate to the one the government does for you. But in other countries you have to manage all of this.
1: And nobody teaches you about this stuff in school. This is the problem. Why do we not have financial literacy in school so that they can teach you what a recession is, how the economy works, all of this kind of stuff. And the argument has been made that it's in the bank's best interest and the financial sector's best interest to make it a little bit opaque and complicated so that they can continue selling you products or credit cards and and making you spend in ways that isn't in your best interest but makes the bank profit. Yeah.
0: You know, I learned how to do quadratic formula, but nobody taught me how to do taxes. Quadratic formula, not relevant in my life. Taxes, forever I'm gonna have to do my taxes. Did you have something like home economics? Did you learn how to cook in school? So you learn learn those skills, right? But you don't learn money?
1: I mean, part of the reason that we're so stressed about it is, yes, a lack of financial literacy, which we should have been taught. But another reason that I don't like talking about money is that I feel like I would be judged on how much I earn, how much I save, how well I manage my money. And this really came through in some of the money diaries. You can see on Man Repeller, the comments section is kind of... Of harsh. One woman wrote her diary two years ago, and then she got a lot of negative comments about the fact that she spent too much while well, she was a finance student, actually, funny enough, she was a finance student, but she didn't know how to manage her personal finances. But now she's a law student, she's still studying, and she did her money diary again. And because of the money diary before, she totally changed her spending habits and became way more Google with it. And she still got negative comments. And one commentator says, "'Girl, don't let anyone tell you how to spend your money. "'Women have had their finances and careers "'controlled by others for too long.' And yeah, like it's a kind of judgment. It's a bit like unconscious bias. When we look at fat people, we think, well, they must be lazy and stupid. And Mm -hmm. it's the same as if you look at somebody who's like really not managing their money, you judge them. Also not just managing your money, also earning little. If, yes. if someone is making minimum
0: wage or not earning a lot of money, it must be because they're not working hard enough or they're stupid.
1: Exactly. In the glamour video where a woman is earning 110k per year and she gives a breakdown of what, what she spent on, in the comment section of the YouTube video, one person has said, how is she my age and I make 26k? I failed at life. We are so hung up on tying our value as people, net worth. And I think one thing that coronavirus is doing is showing us that this value system is not necessarily right and really needs to be changed. Madari wrote a really good opinion in The Guardian last week where she talks about how the coronavirus crisis has exposed the ugly truth about celebrity culture and capitalism. And she says that both cultures rely on the lie of meritocracy work hard and you can achieve whatever you want. But it has become uncomfortably clear how little we value our hardest workers. The healthcare professionals, supermarket staff, bus drivers, all those essential workers who are keeping the world running while the rich just run to their second homes. This myth of oh you work really hard and you get what you deserve, that's not true because as we could see in the, is it the CNBC video? Mm -hmm. That couple were working really hard. Each of them had three jobs. To spend time together he would work as a pizza delivery driver at night and she would just sit in the car while he delivered pizzas so that she could spend some time with him and still they're struggling and also a lot of this about financial competency has to do with who your parents are what they know it also depends on where you come from and it's psychological if you come from a really poor background and if you never had luxury goods When you were a child and you're bombarded with these messages encouraging you to buy a lot of stuff and you can never afford it as a child. When you grow up, you might take a bunch of credit cards and buy all that stuff. And that's got nothing to do with your competency. That's just psychological. In 2015, I was working for free at an art organization in London. During my
0: studies, I really loved it, actually, but we were doing a, ironically, a performance art piece about inequality in society. And one of the young men who participated in it had been arrested and put into jail for the, the riots in London. And he was saying about how it felt like a trap because he was born into bad socioeconomic circumstances. But then everywhere you look, you know, you're told, you've got to have these shoes, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So he took the only means that society provided him with to get the things that society was always telling him he had to have, and then was punished for that. Not saying I advocate for stealing or for smashing windows, but it's sort of, yeah, it's in capitalism's best interest that we keep buying things, and it's also in capitalism's best
1: interest that we don't talk about how much we're earning. (laughs) (laughs) Serena, in the interests of Opening up, this blog post in Scientific American gives us some questions that we should ask if we wanted to be a little bit more open about our finances. One of the questions I thought would be really nice to to do here is what's the best piece of financial advice you've ever had? I'm going to go with two. Okay. Two best pieces of financial advice. One is you should
0: always save 25% of your income. Right when you get paid, 25% should go into savings and from the rest you should budget your life. And the second piece of advice was you should always have one luxury item in your life. It should obviously be comparable to your income, but if you treat yourself to one small thing every month, then you won't go out and make really big purchases. So for example, you know, back Mm -hmm. when I was a student, my one luxury purchase would be that I would buy a really nice mascara. I say really nice. It would cost like $25 versus like a $5.99 mascara. But it was a small thing. It made me happy and you know that was my one luxury per month or every 2 months or how often i needed
1: mesquite what about yours what was your best financial advice well first of all three things can financially cripple you so avoid them at all costs number 1 cars don't buy them number 2 divorce don't do that and number 3 children <laughs> don't have them and then the next piece of financial advice comes from Roxanne Gay who if she has an opinion about anything i just think correct It's correct, exactly. (laughs) So she says that financial independence is the most important thing a woman can do for herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the so-called fuck you fund,
0: where you have money saved up, where, you know, if if your boss starts being tweezy to you or your partner becomes possessive, you can be like, you know what, fuck you, I've got enough money to leave this situation. And there's a lot of great tools out there that are now helping empower women to sort of become better at this. In America, there's Elvest. In Germany, there's FinMarie. If you're a woman, check them out. They make investment easy, and they help you invest your money. And they're by women for women. So Elvest was started by a former woman who worked in investment banking.
1: Can you explain a little bit what exactly they do?
0: What Elvest does, which I'm not entirely sure, as I've never used the platform itself, but a friend of mine does, and she explained it to me. You link your credit card or your debit card, or however you're paying for things, to your Elvest account. And say you buy a coffee for three seventy. They'll round it up so that your account is charged $4, and then they'll invest those extra 20 cents for you on your behalf so you're actively saving money and investing money just by going out and spending. That's brilliant. I think there's a lot of platforms out there that sort of do the rounding up things and it's getting easier there's websites like or apps like Mint which also like give you a breakdown you know you link your debit card and then they give you a breakdown of how much money you're spending on specific things so you can keep better track of your finances I think it's getting easier.
1: On one of those videos that we saw a really smart woman who earns 200k, oh, yeah, she's, she's young cool. she's an IT professional and she said if it can't be measured it can't be managed and that's the thing about money, you just shouldn't ignore it, we should talk about it more Mm -hmm. openly, we should be more honest with ourselves about how we are spending it, Mm -hmm. what our attitude is towards it to, to be really transparent with ourselves and the lies we tell ourselves about it, which might be, oh, I'm an artist, I can't do marketing or I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. And then also, as you said, to get a real good balance between saving and being financially responsible and also enjoying money and not feeling guilty about it. And to quote Roxane Gay again, she says at the end of this article, We'll link to in our show notes. My overall philosophy about money is that you can't take it with you. It's important to save and be prepared and blah blah blah, but you literally can't take it with you. And I don't have kids. So that frees me to enjoy my money while I'm alive. And that's the perfect balance. I also hate it when people say
0: money can't buy you happiness. Can buy you financial stability though, which in turn can reduce stress and anxiety. So yeah, above a certain amount of money it can't buy you happiness but it can give you ease of mind.
1: Yeah, there was a study done on this and it shows that if you're kind of middle class, uh, you're the happiest. So if you're below a certain line and you're poor or struggling, you're not happy. And then if you have financial stability in the middle, you are happy. And then if you have way too much money, you're unhappy again. So yeah. there is a, a sweet point which we should all be striving for.
0: And I think we should all definitely start having conversations with our friends around money, specifically as women. I know that it's really difficult,
1: but, you know, in midst of corona, it's really important to see where we all stand. And another thing all women should do is ask for more money than you think you deserve. Because we, as a gender, consistently asking for too little. Absolutely. On that note, let's wrap it up. I have a quick shout-out, Ramon Rodriguez. I hope you listened all the way to the end, you asshole. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share
0: your internet obsession with us. Tweet us. I am at Madhvi Romani.
1: And I'm at rena underscore grobe underscore. You will find links to our Instagrams and Twitters in the show notes, as well as all of the articles or studies we have referenced. Until next time, thank you for listening. Goodbye.